Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. All right, all right, all right. We are going to continue the story. Today, uh, technically, we're in Second Samuel chapter 6, but if you remember... David has just defeated the Philistines, the the national the national army of the Philistines, not just a garrison of a thousand or two thousand people, not just raiding parties. Like this was a this was a national defeat, and in essence, he has pushed the Philistines back into their their part of the land. Uh, they no longer occupied. The, the land that they had seized uh, when they had defeated Saul. And if you remember, he did it through two different uh, attack plans, which prophetically or illustrates, teaches us that God doesn't always do things the same way more than once. And often, you know what, people, I think, it, I mean, it's it's it, it, uh, it illustrates a lot of things. But specifically, I was thinking... There are people who have seen great victory in their life, and then they then they stop consulting God on how to continue in victory. They 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 defeat whatever it is they're after you know is has been after them. They defeat it, and then they they do not do battle any other way but that way for the rest of their lives, and often they end up falling back against the enemy like or the enemy maintains the ground or or takes the ground back however you want to illustrate it in your mind it's significant that that David won this massive victory and then had the uh, wisdom to continue to check in with God on what to do next and remember, God was like, yeah, go into battle. Yes, uh, I think that this this plan that has been proposed is actually the better plan. It's, a diff- it's different than before. They're ready for you. If you go at it the same way, they are prepared. They, they went home last time. They probably spent months preparing and regrouping and retooling and re-weaponing everybody. So that they could do a you know handle a full frontal assault. So we're I think it's best if you come in from the backside. And we walked through all the the all of that. I I don't I don't mean to do too much on this. I just I think it's it's significant uh, for for a lot of people uh, and honestly a lot of churches and ministries that that uh, or organizations. I mean, it doesn't even have to be, quote, God stuff, right? This is just a good principle. You don't always do battle the same way every single time. It's it's not that you shouldn't. It's that you should check. You should check in. You should, you should go to those who have wisdom and counsel, and you check in with God, and you just say, do we keep doing this the same way? Man, there are so many amazing uh things that have lost momentum and lost uh, ground in the marketplace or in the or in the in the corporate uh, world or also in the ministry world they've lost the ground because they just could not get out of the same rut and some of them are big enough to survive for a lot of years uh, and I've seen them and you get there, or you watch a you know a a recording of what's going on, and it's it's like you're back in time. You've fallen back in time, and you say to yourself, "Wow, this is just like the old days." <laughs> and you might have fun with it for a week or two, but you you wouldn't want to stay there because it's not the old days anymore. It's just a you know, it's just they're stuck. They're stuck. We're meant to be. In movement, we're not meant to be at a campground. Glory. <laughs> so in uh, in this episode, right, Jerusalem is the city. 
it's being built up. Uh, contracts are being signed. Uh, power is being centralized. And by that, I mean money uh, is pouring into the city and then subsequently into the nation because the nation is being seen as a nation of peace. Uh, its king is a nation, is is a king of wisdom. Its availability is at the crossroads of life, right there along. Uh, you know, it's it's a land like geographically, it's perfectly located for major marketing and trade, as well as agriculture and architecture. As people are are you know tradesmen. Remember the last uh, the end of the last chapter, we saw that uh, the king of Tyre was sending his best art artisans um, and and materials so that David can continue to build, you know, landfills. It's called terraces, but, you know, where they fill in and block it up and then build on top of it. And that, you know, holds true today. You go to the archaeology's uh, digs in and around Jerusalem, and there's layer upon layer. City was built, that city was built upon itself a number of times and they, you know, they discover amazing things like you, you can't just go digging to put up a new building in and around Israel, let alone Jerusalem, because they know if you start digging, there's a good chance you're going to run into something that is ancient and needs to be preserved or at least studied. So it's uh, it's slow going for those for those who are trying to build in and around Jerusalem because of this sort of thing the terrace building and the expansion and the government buildings and the Philistines have been defeated and they're moved back into their into their end of the land and and they're recovering and trying to figure out how they're going to interact with David and and David is ready to bring back the ark of the covenant now let's do a little thinking about the ark the ark is a is you know symbolic, right? It was something that uh, that Moses was instructed to build. It was something that the that led the nation in the wilderness. It was uh, you know in the tabernacle. It was part of the worship ceremonies. It held a ton of symbolic uh, representation of the presence of God. It, it also, you know, uh, showed the power of God and the presence of God uh, before before the presence, you know, lifted. But it was there and it was powerful. The cloud by day, the the fire at night. This was this was huge. The ark was huge. And and, you know, David grew up in Bethlehem. Now, there's another word for Bethlehem. It's called um. I, well, yeah, like I'm going to say it uh, correctly, but it's Epaphra, I don't know. It's E-P-H-R-A-T-H-A-H. There. Now you all know. Now you all know. But that was the last name of the most prominent, wealthiest family in and around uh, Bethlehem. So it's sometimes you'll see uh, that name and you'll think it's a completely different place, but it's actually talking about Bethlehem. And I just want you guys to know that. So David grew up, of course, in and around Bethlehem. It's where he shepherded all the all the sheep. It's where people assumed he was the illegitimate child of of Jesse, whose wife had cheated on him. Um, he, uh, you know, anyways, I just, I'm, I'm reading my notes. I want to make sure I cover all those little details because I, I want to, it's important. It's important to know that when David, when David in, in Psalm 132, David makes a, a promise that he will quote, you know, not sleep until he's found a resting place for, for the presence of God, for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, obviously David did sleep, but his his point was that he had committed his life to finding a place for the ark to be permanently. He knew where the ark was. Now the ark, uh, 
All right, so let's go back a little further. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, the Samuel, who was at that point the in charge of the nation, he was the prophet of God and the leader of the nation. So they were at war against the Philistines, which was not unusual. They had a really good record of beating the Philistines. And, and the general uh, practice was that the Ark of the Covenant would come with them into battle. Not all the time, but, but usually. But when Samuel thought that they had a pretty good chance of just you know, winning the battle, anyway, the Ark would stay in the, at, at the tabernacle. Well, in this particular battle, things were not going well. They brought the ark up. Everyone got excited. They were confident they were going to win. Like it was a huge boost to the to the army. And the Philistines hear this roar, this this celebration, this crazy uh, intense emotional shift going on in the Israeli camp, and they they get word back that the ark has been brought up from the from the tabernacle and. And they're about ready to just kind of give up because they know that the ark is basically undefeatable. But they rally. They rally. And and probably under some inspirational speech, their leadership says, hey, if we focus, if we beat this, like then we will have the ark and we will be undefeatable. And so everybody gets fired up. Everyone gets fired up. Everyone goes into battle. The Philistines win, and they capture the Ark. This is this is crazy. This is crazy. It is so defeating to the Israelites. Now, remember, this is 70 years ago. 70 years the Ark was stolen by the Philistines. That's what David is looking to to uh, make amends for. That's what he's looking to redeem. 70 years stolen. Now, Philistines take it. Um, they do what they do, right? What are they going to do? Well, they believe the reason why they were able to win was because they worshiped their own god, their own idol. His name was Dagon. Dagon was basically a merman. Uh, remember that the Philistines were, I mean, they, they had two big things going for them. They had a huge fishing industry, and they they understood how to, s- the smelting, is that the word? Is that the, my engineer is saying yes. The smelting of iron, so they could make iron weapons and tools, and they could charge exorbitant amounts of money for them because they were the only ones in the known world that was able, you know, that were able to mine the ore and smelt it. And so they could make iron plows and iron, uh, you know, wheels or whatever. They, they, they had a corner on the market. So they worshiped this, this merman, Dagon, and it was not a, this was a common practice, right? When you defeated somebody and the Philistines didn't only uh, fight the Israelites. They, they, you know, they were like any nation. They'd go after easy, easy pickings here and there, and they would take their the idols of that particular tribe or that family group or that nation, and they would take them to the temple of Dagon, which evidently had they had an idol. Uh, according to archaeologists, they believe it was about 80 feet tall. They would take it into the temple and dedicate these gods, you know, put them in subservient uh, positions around the the their god, around their idol. And there, I'm sure there'd be some ceremony, and they would humiliate the the idols, and maybe they make the you know some of the captured slaves watch how they mock and make fun of the idols. There was a whole there was a whole culture around this. So they take the ark of the covenant. This again, 70 years ago, uh, from when we're talking about here in 2 Samuel 6. They take the Ark of the Covenant. They carry it into the Temple of Dagon. I'm sure they do this whole hoopla, rah-rah deal. 
they're all exalting, they're merman, they're having a great time. And I don't mean to mock the fact that he's a merman, just it's it's just what he is. I mean it's it's uh if you study anthropology and you and you understand the patterns of mankind, there is there is a a consistent a consistent search by tribes or throughout time to find something bigger than themselves that they can that they can work with i guess is is the best way to say it they look for a god and and the progression of idol worship is often you start with something you start with something small it's manageable and then as as good things happen and you give credit to this this symbol this uh this this idol you might not even have it in a in a form yet you might not know what it is or maybe it is but you're not sure or you know you can't ever get to it like the sun or the moon or lightning you know or rain like there's just there's things that happen within within the development of of mankind within the development of a of a new tribal unit there's things that happen and they they don't know what to do other than other than worship it at, at some level and by worship i mean they give credit to the rain they don't they don't they personify it the rain came the crops grew we had a great harvest we should be thankful to the rain and then somebody will add, well, we should be thankful to the sun as well. And then somebody might add, well, there's, you know, there's bugs that help us out. Yeah, that's true. We should probably thank them as well. And then other, you know, bad things happen. The lightning comes and starts a fire. Well, lightning's bad. Well, we should probably, maybe we made it angry because we, we were, you know, we thanked the rain, but we didn't think, like, it's, uh, that kind of mindset just kind of rolls. And, so over time, a tribe, a, a group of people, will will develop all of these various. Um, we'll, uh, we call them idols, but it, it probably starts with just the idea that they start out being thankful, and then at some level they try to honor what they what they think is out there. Now I do know that there are many who say, well, they should worship the God who made the rain. They should worship the, you know, yes, I know that. I know that. I'm just giving you the storyline so that it bothers me. It bothers me, and I used to do it. That's why it bothers me. You know, I used to mock the Philistines for worshiping a merman. I and I had fun with it, right? And 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 I could make an audience just just laugh laugh out loud at these ridiculous people for worshiping ridiculous idols. You know, what were they thinking? Uh you know, references to the Little Mermaid, all that kind of stuff. And it's, I mean, it's funny, and you can have fun with it, but but there's a deeper reality to it, and that is everyone looks for something. And that's that's been true through time. Even, even if you're, quote, an atheist, atheists usually get there because they don't like the God that they think is portrayed in the Old Testament, and that's one of the reasons why I'm telling these epic stories, is because I don't think, I don't think God was portrayed truthfully. Not that the Scripture isn't true. Please don't freak out. I'm just saying, what if, what if the opinions of the translators, the opinions of the writers of Scripture, infiltrated the the manner in which they translated scripture and the where the credit went and their desire to never give credit to anyone but God for everything that happened in a in a in a pure hearted desire to show that God was all powerful they portrayed God doing things and and allowing things that aren't things that God does or uh wants to have done Anyway, I'm just I'm just throwing out that as a question. What if? And that's the way I approach this. What if? 
And 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 so I give you all that anthropology stuff just so that you know it's yes we can we can make fun of them for you know and we can have some fun with it and it's it's true but it's also true for for every every tribe every nation and it it happens even today and then the whole idea of sacrifices starts right if 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 what we're doing if just being thankful if just quote what we would call praying if just talking to or praying to this god uh isn't isn't making him happy enough maybe we need to sacrifice things to them and then you you know usually it starts with food of some sort and then maybe it starts then it you know it moves on to animals and this is again you can study this this I'm not making this stuff up but it'll move on to animals and it'll move you know from once a year to several times a year and then there'll be entire ceremonies and people add different what I would call programming to it and foods to it and drinks to it and and then they get costumes and and there's a whole progression that occurs and then animal sacrifices start and that that like ups any even more and now you know you're you're giving up things and then there's people that are totally dedicated their lives or they they're forced to dedicate their lives to the god to the idols to the worship of them to the memory of how we do things and why we do things and they write things down and that becomes their quote you know scriptures and they become priests and then those priests become more and more adamant about things that need to be sacrificed they they sense things they hear things and are do I think do I think the you know demons are involved absolutely why because the enemy is all about deception he doesn't care what you believe he'll deceive you into anything so yes I think the enemy's involved in this demons are involved in this uh, they just keep people going down the path and ultimately they land where I mean I, and again this is bared out in history they land on the ultimate sacrifice which is human sacrifice and sometimes it's a young virgin sometimes it's a baby sometimes it's it's a you know it's an elder of high standing or or they sacrifice somebody who has they determine has created uh, a rift between them and God, like they've created treason, so to speak. It it goes on, uh, but human sacrifice becomes part of the kind of the end game uh, of the of the worship of the development. All that to say, wow, Bob, that was a rabbit trail. Yeah, no, that's not what I wanted to say. Uh, what I want to say is, I t- I say all that because I can and I have the time to throw that out. But all that goes into my mind when I see that they took the, the what am I saying? Oh, the ark. They took the ark to the temple of Dagon because in their minds, this was going to keep Dagon happy. He was going to look down and see that they had conquered the God of the Israelites, this God called Jehovah or Yahweh. They bring the ark into into this temple, which evidently is beautiful and big. And they and they go to bed, and they get up the next day, and Dagon had fallen. This is an eighty foot. This is an eighty foot piece of piece of uh, probably rock. Could have been wood. It's huge. It falls before the ark. It basically lays down in front of it as though it's worshiping there, which is awesome. It's awesome symbolism. And they don't, like the symbolism isn't lost on them. They're they're shocked. They're shocked that Dagon fell over. But to fall over in that position is bizarre. Now, who, who do I think did that? You know, did God do this? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, there's stuff going on behind the scenes. There's spiritual battles going on. Do I think uh, God, uh, you know, uh, gets involved in this kind of detail? Sure, why not? He didn't. This is what I know. It didn't hurt anyone. He didn't cause any damage. 
He was just, I think, he was just making sure they knew, you did not conquer me. You took the ark. That's not me. So they they put the idol back up, which is no small feat. They they you know set them all back up on a stone. Maybe they move the ark a little bit. I don't know. But then he falls down again the next the next night. He falls again, lands right in front of the ark as though he's worshiping there. Whoa. They get up the next morning. This like, all right. This, uh, mm. no, 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 no. This ain't good. All right. We, we need to, we need to move the ark. We can't, we can't be standing our God up every day. Uh, so they, they take, uh, wait, did they move it first? I probably should have had this passage open. Um, let's see. It was, uh, let me see if I have it in my notes. Let's see, the ark was such a, so before, let's see, David grew up, uh, yeah, I already covered that. All right, first, oh, there, 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 there are my notes. I set it back up, next day it fell again. Okay, so then, oh, that's what happened. So, okay, oh, yeah, 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 All right, so, in the city, in the city, and I wrote that down too. Again, I'm probably not going to say it right, but Ash, Ash, Ashdod, in the city of Ashdod, where this, where the temple was located, Temple of Dagon. They, it says that the Lord sent tumors on all the people. Now I don't, I don't. Again, I don't think God sends tumors. I think the enemy looked at it, and took advantage of an opportunity. He took advantage of an opportunity to destroy people. That's what the enemy does. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. If he can cause sickness, he'll do it. The people look at two days of the of the of their idol falling down. They know something's going on in the spiritual realm. They're nervous, and then everybody in the city breaks out in tumors. I think the enemy does that because he doesn't stop until you're dead. He's not happy until you're dead. He sees an opportunity to. Uh, to belittle God, to to shift the blame to an innocent man, to an innocent God. Like he knows God is innocent, but he also knows that people are going to give him credit for it, which will make God look like a uh, a wrath filled, a wrath filled angry angry God who got upset with them. I mean, you please understand that that. Whoa! I just dropped my microphone. Sorry about that. If it made a big thump. You, you have to understand the enemy is always out to be deceptive. He wants people to believe that God is an, is, you know, this bipolar God who just like freaks out and, and sends sickness to, to everybody around him. Like that's, that's what, that's what the enemy does. He does this all the time. And somehow we think that, that, you know, if he does it to God, like God's above this. No. If there's anyone he tries to disparage with with a poor image, it's God. He knows what love does. He knows the life-giving restoration of God. He knows the 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 love of the Father for all of his children. And if he can disparage that image, if he can destroy that image, if he can make that image uh, foggy, cloudy, or completely disappear from somebody's mind, that's what he wants. So he sees an opportunity here. He sees that that the idol has fallen twice, and I just think that's that's awesome and symbolic. And he says, "All right, fine. Let's let's turn this around. Let's make God the bad guy." And he gives everybody in the city tumors, so they freak out. They freak out, and and they decide to move the ark in their own mind. They're thinking, "Okay, it's." We we didn't have any problems until the ark showed up. So let's let's get rid of it. So they do. They send it to the capital city, stronghold, mighty fortress where the king lives. They send it to Gath. And the same sort of thing happens. More sickness breaks out. If I know that there are many people who look at this and say, "They see, this is God. 
God getting back at, at the bad people, God getting back at the Philistines for, you know, for attacking Israel, God getting back. I don't, I don't see Jesus ever doing that. I don't. And if Jesus is the picture of God, which he claims to be, and if God claims Jesus to be his son and the picture of himself, he's, they agree with one another. This is who I am. Jesus did not retaliate in this way. That's what I always go to. You look at something in the Old Testament that, that you think looks disturbing, that you think looks wrath-filled, go back to Jesus. Start with him. Did Jesus do this? No. Now, please don't start with the temple thing. I, if you want, like I said, I'll do a special podcast on that. I understand why people like to use Jesus throwing over the tables in the temple as an excuse for an angry God. But that is no excuse for an angry God, and I can go into, the, into that some other time. I just, you know, write me, ask me the question. I'll answer the question in detail. But trust me, Jesus didn't get angry. Jesus didn't show wrath. And it is really clear if you do like huh, if you do like an hour worth of research, it's really clear that he wasn't angry. But you know, God forbid anybody do that kind of research because they like an angry God. Preachers like uh, be nice, Bob. Okay, religious spirits like an angry God because it gives them the ability to manipulate and and twist scripture so that they can control people's behavior, whatever it is that they want people to do. So, yes, the ark moves to, to the city of Gath, and I think the enemy sends more destruction there because he wants God to look like the bad guy. So then they move it again. I think this is this is great, right? They sent the ark to the city of Ekron. And again, more sickness, more tumors. And finally... This this is this is awesome. If you read it, and I should be, I'm really sorry. I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't open this up. I just I didn't know I didn't I guess I didn't know where, where I was going to go with this. But but uh, <laughs> there's there's literally like a meeting of of the of the government. Like everybody gets together. Ekron it goes to Ekron. More sickness, more tumors. They're like everywhere we go with this ark. Bad things happen. So what what should we do? Moving it around isn't working. Like there's this is a national this is now a national problem. Again, this is 70 years ago. They're like, we defeated a, an enemy, we took their God home with us, and now their God it they they give credit to God. Do you understand what what the devil's doing here? Do you understand what the enemy is doing here? He's convinced the people that God's the bad guy. He's convinced the people that God's doing all of this sickness and disease and death, which is the exact definition that, that God gives the enemy. He brings sickness, disease, and death. So he's the, the enemy has literally, he's so deceptive, he's so good at this, that he's given his definition is now plastered on God. So, the, the government officials can't figure out what to do, so they bring in the religious officials, and they're like, okay, what do we do with this ark? And they say, well, clearly we made their God really mad, so we should send it back. Send it back? Yeah. How do we do that? Well, this, well they're, they're not thinking send it back to the nation. They're sending it back to, to whatever God it is, to Yahweh. So they're like, let's put it on a cart, a brand-new cart, that's never been used before. And let's put a really big ox in the front that, in their mind, can be used as a sacrifice. Like, they're not going to kill the ark, uh, ox because they want it to take the cart away, but they're, this is a sacrifice. They're doing an animal sacrifice to the God Yahweh. And they probably know enough about the Israelite sacrificial system that they know that they, they do sacrifice bulls to their God. So they put it on the on the cart and they put the the oxen connected to and then they just all step away and the ox starts to wander. And in their minds they are letting 
you know, God take care of it. And it wanders back into Israel, and it wanders up to a uh, to a particular <laughs> to a city called Beth Shema, Shemesh, Beth Shemesh. Now they see the ark. They see the ark, and I don't. I don't know what goes through their minds. I. I just don't. I. I don't know if it, it had to be curiosity. They see the ark. I don't know how far away from the city it was, but it had to be quite the sight, because this this ox, I'm sure, is taking the road, like the easiest road. I mean, it's pulling a cart. It's just wandering down the street. And everybody who's in in and around the city, outside the city, working there, you know, working the uh, the fields, they're they're farming, their their marketers are coming in and out of the out of the village gates, and this this you know cart is just driverless cart. This is just wandering down the street, and it gets to the city, and of course it goes to the city gate which is where the officials are, the the wealthy, the influential, those with authority. And I'm sure the people are like, what do you want to do? Well, let's take a look at it. And they recognize it, right? It's Maybe it had a cover on it. I don't know. But they recognize it. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, maybe they opened it up because they, they wanted to see if the Philistines had stolen what was inside, which would have been... Uh, the the copy of the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod that had budded, and a little container of manna that never never rotted, never disappeared. And all those had their various symbols, and of course they were all major points in a large story, their story. And I'll eventually get there because. If there's one thing I know about the story of the Bible is I've got years of material for this podcast years it'll be fun because exodus is a huge huge story that that i know a lot of people who don't like god don't like they they know that story or they know they know enough of it that they think god is this horrible being that uh commits genocide and emphasize and and they use it as an excuse to just beat up the church and beat up people who believe in God and they deconstruct, they push deconstruction, which isn't, I don't think, bad. It's just, I think deconstruction is a first step you have to make in order to reconstruct something better, something more appropriate, something in line with uh, the heart of God. Anyways, that's just me, Bob. Focus. I know, my engineer in my head. Bob, you've got a story to tell. You've been 40 minutes. We literally haven't covered a verse. I know, but it's important that we, I think that we get this background. They open it. They open it and it says, of course, they give God credit for this. And I don't think God did it. They open it and 50,000 people died. Now, I don't know how big the city is. I don't know. I don't know if this was a huge ceremony I don't know what went on, but when they opened it, they opened themselves up to a major attack from the enemy because the enemy knew if they disobey, right? If you're going to break the break the law, break the rules, then you open yourself up to death. That's that's the law. And the enemy loves the law because if you break it, you open up the opportunity for him to exact um, pain and sickness and death on you. So the enemy sweeps in and kills 50,000 people, and immediately they give credit to God. Why? Well, they're, they're looking at the ark, and they open the ark. The ark came to them. As far as they're concerned, they think God showed up in the middle of their city and killed them all. This is a horrible picture of God. This is a horrible illustration of what they think God is like, but but the enemy takes advantage of their circumstances to paint a picture of God that isn't true so that he can take advantage of them. For the rest of their lives, they think God is on the verge of killing them all if they disobeyed. Do you have any idea of the strength 
of a religious mindset that now takes a hold of this of this uh, area of this culture. It's it's oh, it's breathtaking. If you look at it purely from an from a strategic level, the enemy was brilliant. He took full advantage of the nation under uh, that that theoretically follows God. I say theoretically because I know not everybody was in line with what they wanted, with what God wanted them to do. But generally speaking, this was a nation that was supposed to draw all people to a loving Father, to an amazing God who has nothing but but passion for their for His children. And he, in the middle of it, he causes God to look like this wrath-filled murderer. Honestly, strategically, it was a brilliant move. But it was a horrible picture of God. So they freak out, they pack it back up, and they put it on a cart, and they send it into the forest. And there it's it's guarded by a guy. Uh, that, um, I forget the name of the forest. Wait, wait. I got it right down. Karas Jerem. Karas Jerem, yeah. And off they go. It literally wanders into the forest. And it lands on this guy's property. And Samuel commissions that guy. Remember, this is 70 years ago, so Samuel's alive. He commissions that guy to guard it. And it just sits on his cart somewhere near his house, hanging out in the woods, in the fields, just sits there. The whole time, the whole time that Saul is king, Saul could have went after the ark. This this is uh, kind of interesting to me. It's interesting because... It wasn't that the ark was stolen by the Philistines and it was still in Philistines' care. The entire reign of Saul, 40 years, the ark was available for him to go get, and he didn't do it. I wonder, what if, right? I I know, I ask myself this question a lot. What if Samuel didn't have such a personal offense that he had been replaced? What if, what if, Samuel had a good relationship with Saul. Like, like this is huge to me. The the trajectory, the arc of this story, <laughs> the arc, the the story arc, not the actual arc, but the story narrative. The narrative would have taken a completely different, completely different direction. If Saul and Samuel had remained in connection, let I mean, just connection. They don't even have to be friends. If they just had a conversation on a regular basis, if Samuel would just come and offer uh, insight and wisdom from from heaven to to Saul, what you know, what would have the differences this could have made? And I think one of the differences that could have happened is that Samuel goes to Saul in in a in a an amazing, you know, interaction, and he says, Saul, can we bring the ark back to the temple? I mean, it's right there. It's in their country. It's sitting on a cart in the woods or a field or whatever off on this guy's property like somebody they know. This is a known entity. And Saul never went to get it, and Samuel never asked him to go get it. Why? Why? Oh, have some fun with that because because I think it's significant. It's significant that it never happened. So back to David, back to David. David grows up in Bethlehem, which is probably about, I mean, it's it's 10 miles from Jerusalem. And I think it's like five or six miles from where the ark is being kept from the woods, in the woods. The ark is in the woods. David would have grown up with stories of people that have seen the ark, shepherds that have walked by it, tradesmen and merchants that knew where it was. He would have grown up and heard stories from these people of, of you know, the exodus, of the victories that occurred when the ark was, was present 
with the army. He would have known the symbol, the symbolism of the ark. He would have known the passion that people had uh, for the ark. He would have understood what it represented for people and how how the nation has never quite been the same since it was stolen. And I'm guessing Samuel got credit for that, which is part of the reason why I think Samuel had such an issue. People remembered Samuel as somebody who raised two terrible children and who lost the ark. And he never went back to get it. And he never, you know, connected with Saul in a way that would have that could have redeemed it. Oh, I just think I just think how different the nation would have been. And no, I don't think it would have destroyed the plans of God. I just don't think God is that narrow in his sovereignty. I think his sovereignty is complete and whole and huge and contains all possibles, all possibilities. Oh, so David grows up with all of this. He sees all of this. And that's why I think in, in what was it, Psalm 134, did I bring that up already? 132, 132, I did bring it up. Uh, he, he, in his interactions with God, in his worship time, in his meditations, in his mystical, amazing, spirit-led opportunities to interact with heaven, he knows that Jerusalem is a city that God spoke about. He knows that the, that the ark is, a, is something that needs to be back where it belongs. And it needs to once again hold the role of the presence of God, hold the, the focus of people to come to God and to worship him there, where, they, where the ark once again becomes a, a, a symbol of God defeating the enemies of God, of God winning the battles which I think is, again, why David brought the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem was under the Jebusites. He brought the head there because he's like, this is where the enemies of God will be destroyed because this city is going to belong to God, and I will not rest until the ark of God is brought back here. David knew it was the right time to go after this. He just knew it. The city was doing great. The nation was being expanded and, and wealth was pouring in. He knew that it was the right time. He knew the city was at peace. The enemies of God had had all been subdued and at some level were or under contract, or under peace agreement, or in covenant with the with the nation of Israel. He knew that this city, this city that was going to be the city of God. Okay, now granted. The one mount is often called the city of David because that's the fortress in the government buildings. But the other mount, the other mountain, the other hilltop was the city of God. That was what a lot of us would consider Jerusalem. That's the place. Technically, it's two hills. Technically, Jerusalem covers the whole thing. So does, if we call it Zion, it's the whole city. But he's like, this is where, this is where it's going to happen. We are going to bring the ark back here. David went all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, where, where God said to Moses, I've got a city set aside. David knows that this is the city. David knows I have secured a place. I've secured the city. I have a place to bring the ark, and I'm going to go get it. And that's what he, that's what, that's, that's where, and now we'll begin the chapter. <laughs> I know. I know. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, no. We'll do another episode. <laughs> we will start this chapter on the next episode of the Epic Narrative Podcast. Hey, thanks for hanging out. I hope I hope you learned something today about the Ark. It's, I think it's a great story. It's a great story, or a great part of the story. It's a layer of David's interaction with heaven that I think is important for us to know. This, in all of David's time in the wilderness, all the time that he spent in the, you know, with the Philistines, in the caves, in the in the forest, I think he had an internal connection to what the ark was going through. 
He was like, I, I, I'm going, I'm when, when I have a place, I, I cannot sleep until, until the ark is in, in a, in a resting place. Cause I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be out in the wilderness. I know what it's like not to have a home. And I think he personified what the ark was going through. And when it all, like even even his seven years, seven and a half years at Hebron, he knew I'm not king over the nation yet. It's not time. He could have went and got the ark. He could have brought it to him. It wasn't a selfish thing. This was a God thing. He wasn't going to bring the ark back until he could bring it back for the nation. This was not, look at what David did. This is, let's let's put God back where he needs to be. Let's Let's show the nation's who we worship. This this was a long, heartfelt uh, passion of David's that started back when he was a shepherd in Bethlehem. And the Lord said, you know, this I, I've got a city set aside for myself. I've got a way to run the government in such, it, it, that, that will draw nations to me. And David, I... You're, you're, you can do this. If you choose to, you can do this. If we stay connected, you can do this. He constantly spoke to David's identity, to his purpose, to the direction that if David continued to make the right choices, it will happen. It was, it's, a, it's a precious thing. When David says, uh, I'm going to go get the ark, this came from a deep place. I, I have a feeling he cried when he said it. To say it out loud, to make that kind of commitment before his before his cabinet, before his military leaders. This I think it shook him when he said those words. And that's where we're gonna start next next time on the Epic Narrative. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.